We have an important topic to talk about this evening. And uh, I'll put it into perspective. I've been working in the field of Jewish outreach for many years. And I used to teach in a program which would provide evidence for the truth of Judaism, the existence of God, the giving of the Torah, and everything like this. And at the end, although the arguments were you know, sufficient for many people, they said, you know, I wouldn't mind taking on a Jewish lifestyle as long as I didn't have to keep any of these laws. Now, you, you see there's a little bit of a problem there. <laughs> what exactly does that mean? How do exactly do I take on a Jewish lifestyle without keeping any of the things that makes a person Jewish? You know? Um, I, uh, I, I know there are people who take on a certain lifestyle. And you would define Judaism. I would sit with a group of people and say, define Judaism. So they'd say, it's a culture, it's a nation, it's a religion. People give different explanations. But I always get this answer. It's a way of life. I said, it's a way of life? I said, yeah. I said, you mean something that you do every day with your entire being? No, something you do three days a year. I said, you can't call something you do three days a year a way of life. So I go to the gym because I believe in exercise three days a year. You know, I'm a vegetarian. I think it's wrong to eat animal products. And I'm a vegetarian three days a year. You know, it doesn't really define a lifestyle. It might be something that you have chosen to do on that particular day. But a lifestyle is something that requires a certain amount of commitment with it. And therein lies the, the challenge. Therein lies the challenge. Because we understand that um, if I'm going to take on a Jewish lifestyle, how do I understand this? So um, the traditional number that's given for the commandments is 613. 365 negative, 248 positive. That's a lot of laws, right? Now, let's be fair. The ones that all apply to the temple don't really apply today. The ones that apply to offerings, the one that applies to ritual purity for the most part, a lot of these don't really apply to us. But there's still plenty left, you know? And those numbers are obviously significant. 365 is what? Days of the year. 248. So um, it's interesting. This number pops up a lot. This week's parasha. Right? Abraham has his name changed to Abraham. I remember I asked this to one of my students once. I said, why did they change his name from Abraham to Abraham? So they said, I guess he took the ham out of his diet and put it into his name. I said, okay, that's one explanation. Yeah. But uh, in Hebrew, it went from Avram to Avraham. As you know, each letter has a numerical value. When you add the hey, Avraham is now worth 248. How many words are there in the three paragraphs of the Shema? 248. This is obviously a setup, right? There's 245. <laughs> That's why we repeat the last three words to get the 248. Ah, clever. Yeah? So what's 248? So the Mishnah makes a count of all the major bones and organs in the body, and it comes up with 248, which means 365 days a year, 248 parts of the body. Mitzvahs are something that's supposed to encompass my entire being. That is a lot. 
and it's extremely demanding. So, um, what does the word mitzvah mean? Mitzvah is commandment. People think it means good deed, like when I was growing up. Do a mitzvah and help your grandmother with the packages, you know? Mitzvah is commandment. And the word commandment has a certain negative connotation to it. Now, it's very difficult to talk about reform theology because part of the theology is that they don't really have a theology and everyone gets to decide on their own. But I had two students at my house for a Shabbos meal who were in a reform high school in Israel. I saw an article in the Jewish Week written by a reform rabbi, and someone told me they saw this on the reform website. So I guess this is a, a generally accepted concept. We don't look at them as the Ten Commandments. We look at them as the Ten Suggestions. Try not to kill. See if you could avoid stealing. Maybe stay away from my wife. You understand? <laughs> suggestions. Ideas for living. Yeah? Now, I'm going to do something I don't really get a chance to do in the yeshivas I teach in in Israel. I would like to defend the reform position. I happen to think they made a good point. And the point is the following. I was in eighth grade. We were doing Gemara Kedushin. And the Gemara asks the following question. Who gets more reward for keeping kosher? For doing a mitzvah? A Jew or a non-Jew? Let's set it up. A Jew goes to university. They don't have a kosher cafeteria. A brown bags it. He eats his kosher meal every day. There's another girl there, Mary O'Reilly. Nice Italian girl. And uh, poor planning. But uh, she's reading the Bible. She comes to Leviticus. Don't eat any animals that don't have a split hoof and chew its cud. Don't eat milk and meat. She decides she's also going to keep kosher. And Mary O'Reilly also brown bags it. The two of them, Moshe Schwartz and Mary O'Reilly, are both sitting there brown bagging it, eating kosher for the rest of their lives. When they get to the next world, who's going to get more reward for keeping mitzvahs, for keeping kosher? How many people think the Jew? How many people think the non-Jew? How many people think the same? How many people are not native English speakers and don't understand <laughs> the question? Okay, that happens too. <laughs> how many of you are actually young enough that you don't know how to listen to any question whatsoever? <laughs> I just spoke at a, five schools in Queens today. Chazak, who's sponsoring this talk, uh, took me to Queens to five schools. And I said in one of them, I said, the number one answer to every question in school today is What? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? What? I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I can appreciate this. I have ADD, you know? I didn't know it at the time. My, the teacher just said he's a space cadet. He doesn't pay attention. He's not interested. Stick me in the back of the room. The kid with ADHD said, you're lucky. We're the ones who got beaten because we were bouncing off the walls. They used to just sit you kids in the back of the class and go, you know? When I was teaching, I had a student who also had ADD. He said to me, how many kids with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? I said, how many? He said, you want to ride my bike? <laughs> and we both went. Anyway, so, uh, but anyway, um, uh, so the Gemara asked the question, who gets more reward, the Jew or the non-Jew, or is it the same? And the answer is the Jew gets more reward. Why? Because he is commanded. 
And there is a simple psychological truth, and that is once you tell me I have to do something, I don't want to. Right? I usually teach students, you know, and I say to a kid, you know, your room is a wreck, even by your incredibly low standards, you know? And you wake up in the morning, you look around, and you say, that's it, I'm going to clean up my room. All pizza boxes that don't still have pizza in it, I'm throwing it out. You understand? Any clothing that stands on its own, I'm putting it in the wash. You know? I'm going to bring in a lawnmower, see what I can do with the carpet. You know what I mean? And they're really determined. They're sitting there planning it out, and then their mother opens the door and says, this place is a pigsty. Clean it up. Now I don't want to. But you wanted to a minute ago. That's before you told me I had to. But now that you tell me I have to, I don't want to. It's a simple psychological reality. If you have ever fasted on a fast day, you know what I'm talking about. There are people who never eat breakfast, not in their whole life. Their mother has cried bitter tears. Have a Danish, have a cup of coffee, have something. I don't eat breakfast. There are people, and I have to take a moment to reflect on this, there are people who forget to eat lunch. I've met people like this. Three o'clock in the afternoon, they go, oh, you know, I forgot to have lunch. I've never had that problem. Afterwards, I forgot that I had lunch, but I never actually forget to have lunch, you know? There are people like this. They don't have the same attachment to food that people like I do, you know? People in my, in my uh, category, we're either thinking about what we're going to eat or we're dieting and thinking about what we can't eat, but we're always thinking about eating, you know? There are certain people who just don't think about it. So these people never eat breakfast. They sometimes miss lunch until it's a fast day. Nine o'clock in the morning, they're pacing up and down. I'm never going to make it. How am I going to get through the day? Oh, my gosh. I have a headache. I better lie down. What time is it? 9.01. Oh, my gosh. How am I going to go? I said, what's the matter? Because I haven't eaten anything. You never eat anything. But I always could. And once you tell me I can't, I'm starving. Just simple psychological reality. So say the reform, if I say that they're mitzvos, if I say they're commandments, now I'm giving you a psychological handicap because I don't want to do it because you told me I have to. So let's change it from commandments to suggestions, and then more people will want to do it. It makes perfect sense. Yeah? <coughs> We old times stuck in the mud Jews still call them mitzvahs. We still call them commandments, even though the logic seems to make sense. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Elam Shachalni Yibro. I went to the doctor. I told him, whenever I drink tea, I get a pain in my eye. And he said, take the spoon out of the cup. <laughs> so, um, but. Uh, why, so why do we call them mitzvahs? I was speaking to a group from Los Angeles, secular young people, and I asked this question. And I got you the following answer. Because if it's harder for you to do, then it's worth more. You get more schar, more reward for it. I said, ah, you thought Judaism was too easy. It's only 613 commandments. So you would like to see it harder by giving you a psychological disadvantage. And the guy's like, um, yeah. I said, let me ask you an honest question. 
Does that question, does that answer motivate you now to want to keep mitzvahs? Or do you just think that's what the rabbi wants to hear? I'll tell you the truth. I figure that's what you want to hear. I said, don't answer this for me. This is the biggest problem in Jewish education and Judaism today. I speak to students all across the world. People who may have gone to the finest yeshivot and seminaries and people who may have had one hour on a Sunday morning in a Hebrew school. And I asked them the same question. What was frustrating about your Jewish education? And the answer is always the same. It wasn't relevant to my life. I didn't find that it spoke to me. I didn't find it was meaningful. I had a kid in a Hebrew school who said to me, we sit there and learn about the laws of kashras, and I know my mother's going to pick me up, we're going out to McDonald's. You know? So this had nothing to do with me. I have boys in yeshiva, they study Gemara, and they say to me, why do I have to know this? I don't have an ox, and I'm not planning on buying one. You know? I don't run through the street with pictures. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, I, I read about all these cases, and it's not relevant to my life. You have to understand this is the biggest problem. If Judaism isn't relevant, if it doesn't make sense to us, it's not going to continue. It has to make sense. And I said to these students, you can't just tell me what you think I want to hear. It's got to make sense to you. Why is it better that it's a commandment than that it's a suggestion? So I want to try to suggest a, an answer to that question. Um, there's a unbelievable book called the Masil Susharim. It's been translated poorly several times into English as Path of the Just, um, and none of it does justice to it. Um, your best bet is, I suppose, to download my shiurim on it, which will be available when my website goes back up on rabbialofsky.com. Until then, you'll just have to get by. I'm sorry. But anyway, um, the, the book is designed to teach a person how to become perfect. I finished it a number of times. I got stuck on humility, but once I got that down, the rest was easy. And, uh, and this, is, this is what he says is in the first chapter. He says like this. Why are we in this world? Why did God create us? What's the purpose of life? And he says, by the way, very dramatically, that the foundation of our entire lives is to know why we're alive. And it's such a simple question, and trust me, it's so hard to answer. Those of you who are in my age group or younger, I'm sure you all received the same recipe for a successful life that I did. Go to university, learn a profession, get a job, get married, have kids, buy a house, happy life. Now you're 40, 45. What do you do now? Get old and die. There's nothing else for you to do. You're finished. Some people play twice. They get another wife, another house, another job. You know what I mean? They go around the board two times, you know? You know? Most people aren't that dramatic. They suddenly realize they don't know what they're doing here, and they have a midlife crisis. Have you seen your friends who had midlife? It's not pretty. You know what I mean? They get themselves this, like, you know, fancy sports car, but they're not so flexible, and they can't really get into it, you know? You ever see these people on the dance floor, you know? Barely alive. Barely alive. Uh, uh, that's a great move. No, it's my back. I can't, I can't move it. <laughs> Eventually, people give up, and they're prepared to just be old. You know, you know they, they start wearing their pants up to here and get the orthopedic sneakers and take two minutes to sit down. I used to act this out, but now I'm actually doing it myself for real, so I don't have the... <laughs> 
Life imitates art. You know what I mean? Slowly, you know. And basically, we fall asleep all the time. Reading the paper in the middle of a conversation, watching TV, and we always deny it. I wasn't sleeping. I wish. A whole night I'm up. (laughs) You know? And we would just keep, you know, that, that, that becomes life. You know? My mother should live and be well. She just had her birthday yesterday, 89 years old. So, uh... When you reach that age, you reach the ultimate status symbol, which is comparing medications with other elderly people. You know, This is what my mom does. She always wins. She's got more pills than anybody. She goes, oh, you take that? I do too. How much? 50? I take 200. I'm sicker than you are. <laughs> the more medical science struggles to keep us alive, the more inherently important we are. You know what I mean? And, and that becomes it. I said this once to a group of students years ago, and someone said, I heard this. I was like, oh, it was in a shear? He goes, no, 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 I'll find a few. He sends me a clip from this movie with um, Billy Crystal uh, called City Slickers, where he goes off to become a cowboy, yeah? So he's speaking to a third grade class. Enjoy this time of your life. It's the best part, third grade. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s... You get married, you have a couple of kids, you say, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, start to lose your hair, you grow another chin. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you can't go out anymore because the music's too loud. You'll have a minor operation. You'll call it a procedure, but it's an operation. The 60s, you'll have a major operation. The music's still too loud, but you can't hear it anyway. The 70s, you and your wife retire to Florida. Start having supper 4 o'clock in the afternoon, lunch 10 o'clock in the morning, breakfast the night before. (laughs) Start wandering around malls looking for the ultimate frozen yogurt. The 80s, you'll have a stroke. You'll be taken care of by a Jamaican woman that your wife can't stand and you call mama. Any questions? (laughs) This is what he says. I mean, this is... This is unfortunately, he's giving you. So his answer was become a cowboy. You know what I'm saying? But when a person asks themselves, what am I doing in this world? Why am I alive? It's such a hard question. I was talking to guys in their 20s about marriage, and I said, you know, when you get married, you have to make sure you have the same goals in life. Does anyone know what their goal in life is? So this guy says, I do. I'm going to be a dentist. I said, that's not your goal in life. He said, sure it is. I said, no, it's not. He says, I'm in dental school. I said, I'll prove it to you. He says, go ahead. I said, you're 90 years old, 100 years old. You're on your deathbed. They're writing your eulogy. You get to listen in. He was a dentist. He filled many cavities. He was especially good with molars. And he, the guy says, stop. I said, no, I'm getting to the best part. Your tombstone will be a big tooth. And it'll say, here lies a dentist. He says, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I said, I did? I didn't mean my goal in life is to be a dentist. I mean, I want to earn my living from dentistry. Ah, so what's your goal in life? So I have no idea. Whenever anyone asked me, I said, I want to be a dentist. And everyone said, good for you. You understand? When a person has to really think, okay, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, when I was a kid, people lived to 70 and that was it. Then you died. Most people died by 70. You retired at 65, you had five years to play golf and that was it. Yeah? Now you see people in their 80s playing, playing tennis. And you meet people in their 90s. We never saw anybody in our 90s. So we'll probably all live to about 100. And we plan our lives till 40, 45. So says Mr. Shum, why are we alive? Why did God put us here? I ask this question to yeshiva guys. They tell me to serve God. I said, why? 
God needs us to serve him. I said, he does? Yeah, he needs us to pray and, and, and he needs us to serve him. I said, God is infinite. God doesn't need anything. That's one of the definitions of being infinite. He doesn't need anything. He's very secure. He wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror and sees nothing. He's, he's an infinite, you know? He has everything that he could possibly want. He doesn't need you to serve him. Why are you in this world? For one reason. This is what the Masil Shem says. To get pleasure from God and enjoy the divine light because that is the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. You know why we were created? To get the greatest possible pleasure. That's it. Be that what it may. When I say this to college students, they said, then what am I doing wasting my time in this class? I should be out fulfilling my purpose. Uh, there's always a catch. You know that. You weren't created to get a pleasure. You were created to get the greatest pleasure. Because not all pleasures are created equal. Take something simple. Simple for a non-Jew and so difficult for a Jew. A buffet. Have you ever noticed that non-Jews don't get it? They just walk over and take a plate of food. A Jew looks at that buffet and says, I can eat all that food. I paid for it. I just physically can't. So the goal is to eat the most from the most expensive things. Watch a Jew at a buffet. First, he walks around the whole thing, planning it out like a military campaign. <laughs> Tasting here, sniffing here. You know, I can get that anytime. It's cheap. Don't touch that. You know what I mean? Walking around. Then they start collecting the plates. And they begin to expand like the Incredible Hulk. You know what I mean? You know? And then they can't eat any more. They bring out the dessert. They say, okay, roll me over. You know what I mean? Like, you know? And uh, bring me to the juicing room. You know what I mean? You know? I, 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 something. Even then you can't eat it all. You're going to have to make choices. Those are easy choices. As life gets harder, the choices get harder too. You want to travel the world? I had, in Israel, you know, you meet these people. They travel the world. They go to India. They go to China. You know, they, they travel around the world when they, when they need to make money. They stop someplace. They work. And then they, they go back on the road. That's their delight. They'll never know what it's like to be part of a community. Maybe that's better. Maybe. You don't know. There are people who flip from relationship to relationship. They'll never know what it's like to be married for 50 years. Maybe it's better. People don't know. Did you, did you consider all of the options? Life is made up of opportunities, all of them good. Yeah? Chocolate doesn't taste bad and bran doesn't taste good. You understand? That's not necessarily the way we make decisions. I have to make decisions in life based on what I think is going to be the greatest thing for me. So I can say I can eat that dessert or I can fit into that outfit. But I can't do it both. I'm going to have to take a choice. You know? I can't have it all. And so life is going to be about making choices to find what is the greatest pleasure. And says the Masilis Hashem, the greatest pleasure is going to be an infinite pleasure. A pleasure that gets better and better and better and better and better and better. And we have no idea what that means. Because our pleasures are so limited. Let's take a common one, pretzels. How many pretzels can a person eat while it's still enjoyable? Three, maybe four. Then your teeth get covered with pretzel gunk and everything you eat tastes exactly the same. You ever see the love-hate relationship people have with pretzels? Like push it away, get this away from me and then they pull it back and they keep hoping it'll taste better and it never does. So sad. Yeah? 
But imagine a bag of pretzels that never ran out and you live forever. And you never get full and your teeth never get covered with pretzel gunk and each pretzel tastes better than the one before. <laughs> and you just keep eating it it gets better and better and better. Wow. Wow. That would be an unbelievable thing. <coughs> That's an infinite pleasure. An infinite pleasure can only come from one place, God. Because God's infinite. So that if we connect to God, we will get this infinite pleasure. Says the Masil Shasharm, why did God create us? To get pleasure from God and enjoy the divine light because that's the greatest pleasure that there is. I can't speak for anybody else here. This was not part of my Jewish education. My Jewish education was about doing mitzvahs. Now you eat a matzah, now you shake a lulav, now you put a coin in the tzedakah box, say the shema, do the mitzvah dance. And you collect mitzvahs until you have enough tickets, and then when you die, you get to the skee-ball counter in the sky. And if you were good, you can you know, hand it in and get like an iPad, and if you weren't so good, you don't have so many tickets, you end up with one of those little soldier dolls with the parachute, you know, and <laughs> keeps getting tangled. And for the rest of eternity, that's all you have. <laughs> no, the pleasure comes from being close to God, having this infinite pleasure. We don't even know this. I was on a plane next to a middle-aged Israeli businessman who was on his way to India to join his wife in the ashram where they were studying Buddhism and meditation. I said, why? He says, you reach a point in your life where you want more than just physical pleasure. You want a spiritual pleasure. I said, have you ever considered Judaism? He laughed at me. What does Judaism have to do with spirituality? Judaism is about doing mitzvos. has nothing to do with spirituality. And people believe this. So a lot of Jews go to like Buddhism and meditation. So there was this Jew who was doing a documentary on the Dalai Lama. And if you were close to the Dalai Lama, he gave you your own mantra to meditate on. And he kept pushing this guy off. And the guy kept asking him for a mantra, and he kept pushing him off. Until finally he says to him, why won't you give me a mantra? And the Dalai Lama says, you're Jewish, aren't you? And he says, yeah. He says, you already have a mantra. He says, no, I don't. He says, you never learned it? Most Jews learn it. He says, no. So he says, okay, clear your mind. You know, assume the position, go into a meditative state, and says the Dalai Lama, repeat after me. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Are you sure you never heard this? He says, yeah, but no one ever told me I could meditate on it and lift myself out of this world. Because we never learned the Gemara in Brachos that says, people, you spent an hour preparing for Shmona Esrei, an hour saying Shmona Esrei, and then an hour coming down from the experience that was so far out of this world it took him a whole hour to come back down. That's what tefillah is supposed to be. Shabbos. Why do we keep Shabbos? Because there's this wave of holiness that fills the world. That's what the Torah itself says. Every seven days there's a wave of holiness and all of the mitzvahs teach me how to tap into it. Why do we eat kosher? I always love it. You know, people say to me, it's for health and hygiene. I said, you and I are eating in different kosher restaurants. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> the ones that I've gone to, there was a lot of stuff going on, but it was neither health nor hygiene. You know? I said, the, the Torah says, you, you, this is a spiritually developed diet. 
There are certain diets that are good for your blood sugar, certain ones that are good for energy, for your mind. For, this is a diet that opens you up to spirituality. That's it. That's why we eat kosher. You know, the Torah itself says it. Yeah? The timtum. We have timtum alev. It'll close off your heart. I have a friend of mine who's an armchair Kabbalist. You know, and when he has a group of beginners, after he gives his shear, he says, now I'm going to do my party trick. And he goes around the room and he tells everybody who keeps kosher and who doesn't. And he's always right. And they said, how do you know? He says, because I threw in a few advanced concepts and these guys got it and you guys didn't. That's how I knew who keeps kosher and who doesn't. You know, I can't pull those kind of tricks, but, you know, but, uh, but it means that there's a level of spiritual awareness. That's the only reason we do these things. So all of Judaism is for one reason. For us to get this unbelievable spiritual pleasure from being close to God. So why do we have these laws? Why are they mitzvahs? Why are they commandments? So uh, those of you who are married or who have ever been in a relationship will understand what I'm saying. Every relationship comes with commandments, not suggestions, commandments. Right? Um, I give this example to students, so you can understand it, though. Yeah, you're driving late at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, your car breaks down, you don't have a cell phone. You get outside of the car, it starts to rain, and it's cold. And you start walking till you find a payphone, about a mile in the rain. And you call up your best friend, and the phone is ringing and ringing. And finally, your friend answers the phone and goes, Yeah? You say, It's me. So, why are you calling me so late? You know, I got to get up in the morning. He says, Listen, I broke down the middle of nowhere. It's cold. It's rainy. You know, I, I have nobody else to call. Could you come and pick me up? So, the guy thinks, It's my best friend. Middle of the night. It's cold and rainy. No. Hangs up the phone. Right? <laughs> now, when you see the guy the next day, what's the first thing you'll say? I, well, I know the first thing you'll say, but after you get through with that and discussing his mother and all that. You know what I mean? When you get down to the, the actual nitty-gritty, you're going to say, you're not my friend. So what do you mean I'm not your friend? We go out, we have a couple of drinks, you know, we watch a movie. I said, you weren't there for me. I said, what are you, my grandmother? You're going to give me a guilt trip? I didn't feel it coming out. It was late, it was rainy. It was... Now, we may or may not choose to continue this relationship, but if we do, we will downgrade it. Because we know this is someone I cannot count on. They are not there for me. Even though I never spelled it out, even though I didn't sign a contract, but we know that friends are there for each other. I expect it. Not if you feel like it. It's not a suggestion. You have to be there for me. And every relationship has I have tos. Yeah? Uh, neighbors. Then we don't have to be friends, but you want to be a good neighbor. There's I have tos. Don't block my driveway. Don't let your kids uh, run around on my flowers. That's it. Suggestions. Doesn't have to, uh, you know, be uh, the best friends. But that's a relationship. As you move up in levels, the relationship becomes greater. Now, I learned this the hard way. <coughs> I got engaged to a wonderful woman who's still my wife. And uh, we're married about 37 years. My wife, uh, at our last anniversary, thanked me for the 35 happiest years of her life. I said, we're married 37. She said, the first two. But, um, okay, 
So I can't say we're married happily for 37, but we're married 37 years. <laughs> and uh, I remember we first got engaged. This is before there were cell phones, you know? And I was running a youth organization. I kept crazy hours. I was running around meeting with kids, going here, you know? I finally got home about 2.30 in the morning. I throw myself on the bed. I'm too tired to take off my clothes. I'm just exhausted. And the phone rings. I figured 2.30 in the morning, who's calling? You know, it's uh, probably a druggie about to, you know, steal a car and you know, I need somebody to call. Those who usually call me at that time in the morning, you know? And I'm nervous because the phone is ringing because I'm still, you know, I moved back to my parents' house. I was living in L.A., for two years, and then I was offered to become a Long Island director. So my parents live in L.A., so I moved into my old bedroom, put in my own phone. And you know, if your parents are still around, you never grow up. You never grow up. My mother's 89. When she sees me, she says, that's a nice outfit, don't get it dirty. She doesn't know how I got dressed without her. You know what I mean? You know? Did you eat? Did you eat? I ate. You know? Did you eat? Yeah, what'd you have? You only had soup. You don't have soup. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... it's the constant. The kind, you never really grow up. So here I moved back to my old bedroom. You know, my mother, like all Jewish mothers, sleep like this. <laughs> and I come into the house 2 o'clock in the morning. She says, who is it? Axe murderer, mom. Go to sleep, you know. I've come to butcher the family. He goes, all right, lock the door. And I said, no problem, you know. After a while, my mom stopped staying up for me. My dad, one time, sees the light on in my room at 3 o'clock in the morning. He opens it up and he gives the dad speech. What, are you crazy? you got to get up in the morning. What are you sitting there fooling around? I said, Dad, there's a girl on the phone. She wants to kill herself. Should I tell her to call back in the morning? And my father had no choice. He had to confront the fact that I was now a responsible adult. And he did it with grace. Nah, I can't talk to him. He's crazy. <laughs> my father gave up. Everybody gave up on me, you know? The phone's ringing 2.30 in the morning. And after three times, I finally pick it up. And it's Simi, my, my collar. And I said, Simi, what are you doing up so late? And she said, where were you? I said, where was I? I said, I had stuff to do. I was talking to this kid and that kid, you know. I mean, my mother doesn't ask me where I was, you know. She said, but don't you understand now that you're engaged? Don't you understand now you're in a relationship? Don't you understand that comes with responsibilities? And I said, no, I had no idea because I'm a guy. Girls, before they get engaged, go through this terrible angst. I'm going to change my name. I'm going to become pregnant. I'm going to move with this guy. What am I going to do? And guys are like, you cook? Okay, I'll live here. You know, like, you know. <laughs> We're really very simple. We don't, you know. <laughs> Seinfeld once said, I bet you girls are wondering what we guys are really thinking. I'll tell you, nothing. You know, we're just walking down the street, you know. And women are, are always steps ahead of us. So you walk into the house and you're in a fight that you didn't even know started, you know, because she started without you, you know, and you walk in the middle and you're like, whoa, you know, like, I don't even know how this happened, you know, but, uh, you know, we're, we're really very simple. So that's why every husband has to be trained to call. Did you call? Did you call home? Did you have to call? Again, this is before cell phones. Jackie Mason used to say, you could tell a Jewish guy walking down the street, is there a phone? Did you see a phone? You know? So, hi, all right, I'm, I'm about to cross the street. I'll call you when I get to the other side. You know, get to the other side. Okay, I'm at the other side. I'm going to walk in, have a bowl of soup. I'll call you if it's hot, okay? You know, and then, you, know you call me, you know. That was before cell phones. Now forget it. You ever see these husbands in the supermarket? I'm passing the apples. I'm going to the oranges. I'm on my way to the PJ. You want PJ? Yeah, okay, hold on. You know what I'm saying? And everybody's... <laughs> it's constant, constant. But it doesn't come natural. So what if you didn't have those obligations? What if there weren't any I have tos? 
This guy says to me, my wife is so unreasonable. I said, what do you mean? So I get up early in the morning. I have to take the train into Manhattan. You know, I get there early in the morning. I work there late. I have to put in extra hours in this economy. You know, I come home late at night. All I want to do is take a shower, have something to eat, and go to sleep. And my wife wants to talk to me. I said, wow, is that inconsiderate. He's like, right, yeah? What should I do? I said, well, you stick to your guns, and eventually she won't want to talk to you either. (laughs) Now, he knew there was something wrong with that, but he couldn't quite figure out why. Because ostensibly it's what he wants, but of course it's not what he wants. Nobody wants to feel like nobody cares what I do, what I say. Husband calls up and says, honey, I'm going to be late. It's okay. No, I don't want you to wait up for supper. She says, I wasn't going to. Oh, well, I might be really late. I don't want you to wait up. You should go to sleep. She says, I was going to anyway. I might not even be there in the morning when you get up. I might work right through the night. And she says, listen, come home. Don't come home. Talk to me. Don't talk to me. I don't really care. Whatever is good for you is fine with me. Don't ever feel obligated that you ever have to come home. Very few husbands will hang up the phone and say, hey, my wife's great. (laughs) They'll say, she doesn't love me anymore. She's leaving me. You know, there must be somebody else. Why doesn't she expect me to come home? Because if there are no obligations, what I'm saying is, it's not that I'm such a great, wonderful person. I don't care about you. When God says they're commandments and not suggestions, if he says they're suggestions, he says, I don't care what you do. Talk to me, don't talk to me. You know, be close to me, don't be close to me. I don't make a difference. But if it's a commandment, then God says, this is important. I expect you to come home at night. I expect you to talk to me. Because this relationship is a real relationship. Non-Jews have seven mitzvahs, but they're mitzvahs. They're not suggestions. Yeah, because God says, okay, you want to have a relationship with me? It has to come with mitzvahs. It has to come with obligations. And it's the obligations that make the, mitzvah, that make the relationship. Now, that's true, but it's incomplete. Because a person can fulfill an obligation and not use it for the purpose of building relationship. I'll give you an example. There is a commandment, thou shalt remember thy wife's birthday upon pain of death. Yeah? <laughs> if you don't believe me, just forget it one time and you'll say. Yeah? So, uh, so, okay, so you come home on your wife's birthday, a dozen long stem roses. And she says, oh, for me? And he says, well, it's your birthday, right? I have to. I forgot two years ago and I never heard the end of it. You want me to put it in water or, or can you? Well, you know what? I'll do the mitzvah mahadran. I'll put it in the water. He sets up the flowers and he's like, can I go now or am I supposed to talk to you? Like, what happens now? She says, no, you can go. Oh, good, because I want to check my email. You know? What a beautiful building moment that was. There's, a, there's, a, there's an obvious difference between men and women, as everybody knows, especially when it comes to gift giving. Guys like practical gifts. Buy him a ladder, he'll climb right onto the roof. Buy him a drill, he'll start making holes in the wall right away, putting up hooks, you know? Buy him a shawarma, he'll eat it right in front of you. Ah, this is great. Guys like practical gifts. You buy a girl a blender for her birthday, she'll stick your hand in it, you know what I mean? (laughs) 
Every mall has at least one store dedicated to worthless stuff that girls like. Little glass figurines, scented candles that nobody ever lights. These don't go over with guys. They want something practical. Hey, Bob, I uh, got you a little unicorn. (laughs) Hey, great, I'll put it next to my scented candle. (laughs) Why? Because to a girl, it's not the gift. It's the expression of a relationship. And therefore, the fact that you cared about me is what makes the difference. God is infinite. He doesn't need anything. You think it makes a difference to God whether you eat a matzah or not? He gets a kick out of hearing the crunch, you know? Seder night, crunch, crunch. You know, the angels say, God, there's another one. Ah, crunch, 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 crunch. I love this time of year. Crunch, crunch. God doesn't give you a matzah. There's something to it in building the relationship. And the truth is that's a study in itself to look at every mitzvah and say, how does this build a relationship with God? You can see it in every mitzvah, how the mitzvah is designed to be able to bring me closer to God. Even if I don't understand why. I just know that it's important to God. That itself is important. Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People tells an amazing story that his wife would only buy Westinghouse appliances. Sometimes they weren't as good as other appliances. Sometimes they were more expensive. She says, whenever I would suggest buying something else, she would get angry at me, and she would never tell me why. And this went on for years. And one time we had a quiet moment, and I said to her, why are you so, you know, insistent on Westinghouse? And she says, I'll tell you why. Because during the Depression... People weren't buying appliances. And my father was an appliance repairman. And Westinghouse fired everybody. And he said to my father, we don't feel right firing you because you've got a family to support. So we'll keep you on even though there's no work. He, all he knew is it was important to his wife to buy Westinghouse. So he bought it, but he didn't know why. But once he knew why, it made it that much more poignant. Okay, God tells us to do these mitzvahs, even if we don't know why and we know that it's important to God. That alone is something. But if we can look into it and figure out why this mitzvah is important, what I gain from this mitzvah, 613 mitzvahs, 248 correspond to the parts of our body, 365 the days of the year. Because if we take on a lifestyle of mitzvahs, then it will build the relationship on every level, every part of my body, every day of the year with God. And the more intense a relationship is, the better it is. Some people play a game. I know there's people who have always been observant. What would you do if God gave you one day off and you could do whatever you want? So I had a student who asked me this question once. And I said, you know what that's like? That's like my wife says to me, you know, we've been married a long time. You have a day off. You're not married. Do whatever you want. Hang out with whatever you want. Go wherever you want. I would be so sad. My wife doesn't want to be with me. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I always look forward to the time I have to be able to spend with my wife. I'm vying for position with my children 
who want my wife's time too. None of them want my time, but they all want my wife's time, you know, and I just wait online with everybody else, you know, to see if I can, you know, get in, you know. But, uh, you know, when we have that time together, I'm, I'm, it's something so precious to me. I had a period of time when I used to leave the house at 6.30 in the morning, come back at 10.30 at night. <coughs> I didn't want to take a shower and have supper. I wanted to fall onto the bed in a fetal position and cry myself to sleep. I was so tired. But my wife, who had been home all day with our dysfunctional children, wanted to speak to an adult. Since they were not available, she settled for me. And I knew... All it would take for a marriage to fall apart is not to care enough. So I would push myself to stay up, even though I was tired, to have those conversations. Because the more you invest, the more time you put in, the more meaningful it will be. So you want to have a low-level relationship? Okay, there'll be less I have tos. You want to have a more intense relationship? There'll be more I have tos. And the deeper the level of the relationship, the more enjoyable it will be, but the more obligations it comes with. And if at any point I say, listen, this is too much for me, so instead of being, so to speak, married to God, we'll just be friends. You know, we'll hang out together every now and then. You know? But if you want to get the real pleasure, the real pleasure comes from an intense relationship. I want, to, uh, I want to finish up with this idea. My kids uh, wanted to go to take in Hebrew what they call organit, learn how to play the organ. I knew this wasn't real. I knew eventually they would give it up. So I bought the cheapest possible organ I could. And as they schlepped it back and forth to the chug, um, keys started to break off. So they told my wife, keys are breaking off, you know, I need a new one. So she said to me, the kids need a new one. I said, what for? There's still plenty of good ones. Look, this one works, this one works. He says, no, if you want to play music, you need all of the keys. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, you know what I'm saying? If you want to play something, you have to have all the keys, right? Um, I have eight daughters. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I travel. <laughs> when I'm on the road, I use the bathroom as much as I want, because when I back home, forget about it. You know what I mean? This is my chance, you know? And um, uh, I'm one of six boys. There were no girls in my family, just to show you that God has a sense of humor. So I have eight daughters. And um, one of the joys of having daughters, which we boys never had, is they take ballet lessons. Me and my brothers, we never really took ballet lessons. We were too busy having rock fights with the kids down the block, you know. But my daughters take ballet lessons. Now, this costs money. So uh, I was like, uh, you know, I'm paying money for this. I want to see something impressive. You know, I saw Barishnikov pirouette 35 times without stopping. You know, I'm looking for something impressive, you know. So they come home and I say, okay, what, what, what do you got? So they say, I learned this. For those of you who can't see, I just put my feet at right angles. I said, third position. Oh, someone else got daughters. Yeah. So I said, I'm not impressed. My wife says, wait. Soon they learned how to put their hands over their head. Then they learned how to bend their knees. Soon they could do all three at the same time. (laughs) 
I said to my wife, I'm not impressed. This is not dance. And she said, you're right, it's not dance. Each one is a step that you need if you want to dance. Every key is essential if you want to play a symphony. And every mitzvah is a step if you want to turn your life into a work of art. Can you get by with less? Sure you could. I was a magician as a kid. I didn't like to practice. I had friends of mine who were very, very skilled. And they would practice a move for hours and hours. I got back by on personality and on mechanical tricks. But uh, I saw a guy, I bought a trick. I knew how it was done. I saw somebody do the trick. I knew how it was done. It looked like magic. I said, how did you do that? He said, I practiced it for about 100 hours. I knew a guy who was a concert flutist. I said, how come I never see you play the flute? He says, if you don't have eight hours a day to practice, it's not worth it. I said, I agree with you, it's not worth it. You understand? <laughs> eight hours a day? You know, if you want to really be successful, you have to invest. The more you put into it. Is every mitzvah precious? Of sure it is. You know, you may not be able to move past heart and soul. The worst part are the people who only know the first part. You keep praying, at least somebody else would come by and go, I used to sit in the library, and there'd always, there was a piano there, and there'd always be some kid sitting there playing heart and soul, you know? In New York State, they passed a law that if they do that for over an hour and you kill them, they can't hold you responsible. You know what I mean? It's okay. But if you keep practicing, you get better and better and better. And then you could be like my friend A.B. Rottenberg, who used to just sit down at the piano and start playing. I didn't recognize any of the music. And I said to his wife, once he's playing, and she said his day, he could just sit down and take whatever he was feeling and turn it into music. That takes a lot of time to master yeah, it takes a lot of time to be able to do. A person who wants to live an average life, it's very easy. Most people don't live an average life because they think it's the best they can do. It's easy. If you want to live an exceptional life, then you have to invest in it. The reason we do mitzvahs is that every single mitzvah makes this relationship with God stronger, gives us this spiritual existence that will eventually lift us out of this world. And as much as you get it, that's how good it is. Every little thing that we do is valuable. But it takes all of the nuance and all of the moves to be able to take something that's, you know, okay and turn it into a work of art. For sure, living an exceptional life is harder than writing a symphony or doing the most difficult dance. There's no question about it. But a person who can master that, then that's something worth investing in. My friends, it was a privilege to have this opportunity to speak with you. I hope we have this chance again. And uh, please, God, all of us should be able to look back and say, I lived the exceptional life. Thank you very much.